Hi there, this is Cindy Tonkin. I'm the Consultants Consultant. I work with data science teams, helping them work even smarter, faster and nicer. If you're brilliant and you want to be even better, this is the podcast for you. Ladies and gentlemen, today uh, I have with me Maura Church, uh, who leads a team of data scientists, and we're going to chat about all things smarter, faster, nicer. Um, Maura, tell us more about you. Yeah. So my name is Mara. I lead a data science team at a company called Patreon. Mm-hmm. We're about an 180 person Series C startup based in San Francisco. And our mission is to fund the creative class. So we kind of believe that creators and artists of the world aren't paid the value that they deserve um, by ad, um, ad monetization models. And so mm-hmm. we provide a subscription tool for creators to get funding directly from their fans. Nice. So if you have a favorite podcast, you can give them a dollar a month or $5 a month and you get cool benefits in return as a patron. And then if you're a creator and you have a bunch of fans, you can actually make a living directly from those fans instead of needing to rely on other models of monetization. Um, And we've been around for about six years. We're paying about 100,000 or so creators over $500 million this year. Um, And so it's been been really cool uh, to be a part of this team. And, And I run the data science team at Patreon, which is five data scientists. Wow, that's pretty. And what's your journey to get to here? How did you get to this? I didn't ask. I, I didn't. This is a question without notice. So you can say, <laughs> I don't want to tell you, but I don't think you will. <laughs> yeah. So I started, um, I was really interested originally in kind of the intersection of computer science and music uh, and computer science and art. So that's kind of where I came from and what I studied. I studied how to apply computer science methodologies to understanding music, um, to analyzing music. There's like a really cool world of computational musicology uh, that it came from. I thought I wanted to be a software engineer, and so I tried that, uh, and I thought I actually had an interesting first experience software engineering where I was on a very small team, and it was very non-collaborative, and I thought, I'm such a people person, you know, software engineering isn't for me because this is so isolating. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought, I want to move to a field where there's like kind of a higher level view of a problem, and I'm working with more people, Um, so I got interested in data analysis. Uh, So I worked at Google for about um, a little more than a year, focusing on spam and abuse detection. So Mm. Hangouts fighting spam on your your Android dialer and kind of getting into Google Voice and it was a really interesting technical challenge. Um, But then this opportunity opened up Patreon to work kind of back in that what I love intersection of tech and arts. Um, And so it came to Patreon about three and a half years ago as the second data scientist um, and have grown to, to lead the team from there. The second data science, like the second violin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Second violin. Yeah, exactly. And then, and now you conduct the orchestra. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fab. And do you play an instrument? I do. So I am a huge choir nerd. Um, I sing in a choir here in San Francisco and have have been kind of a like classical singer all my life and then play piano and play ukulele and play some flute. Um, uh, and so take a lot of instruments, not so seriously, but I'm a consider myself a somewhat serious uh, singer, which has been really fun. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love that. There's something about, I, I sing too and no, we need it probably as well as you do, uh, but <laughs> It, the joy of singing in a group yeah. with harmony, it's not, it's just, you can't beat it. It's yeah, a, I, t- I totally believe it can, like, cure the ills of the world. Um, yeah. There's something so special about singing with other people that just makes you very hopeful for the future of the human race. <laughs> exactly. You must do it several times a week. And if you yeah. don't, you won't be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> 
So is, is singing and music part of what, what you do to work smarter? What do you do to work smarter? What are your routines? Yeah, for me, working smarter, I mean, I definitely think that there's, um, it's funny, I don't call it a work-life balance, I call it a work-life harmony, because I think at certain times, like, you need your work to be a bigger focus, and other times you need your life to, your, you know, your life outside of work. Um, but singing is definitely something that I do to work smarter, um, spend a lot of time in the week singing and exercising and hanging out with friends. Um, but for me, a lot of working smarter, especially, you know, with the team, is being really clear on what the priorities are and what the focus is. I think mm-hmm. a lot of working smarter is, especially in a, at a startup environment like Patreon, where there's so many things you could do. There's like a list of a hundred things that are important for the business and getting really clear on what the top one to three things are that you want to work on that week um, has been, I think, a huge part of, of me working smarter and making sure that everyone on my team kind of knows like you have to have your priorities for the week, for the month, for the quarter in order. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge part. Another part for me is um, I'm one of those people that has to write everything down. Like, Anything that happens in a meeting has to be written down, have to have a to-do list, have to have documentation, um, which has been, at least I found it very helpful in working smarter and like following up on things and knowing what's going on. Um, And then I think another really important part for me of working smarter is every once in a while, like zooming way out and understanding where I'm going and where the team is going. Um, and like taking the dedicated time, whether it's like for my own career, like a weekend retreat of figuring out what I want to do, or like the team taking a day or a half day to really figure out our strategy. Um, Mm -hmm. I think has been really important to making sure we're kind of headed in the right direction in the long term. Yes. I'm surprised that more people don't do that. When I work with teams and we do you know an off-site or a half day or whatever yeah. every time they go oh my god we should do this more often I'm so much more clear um it's, so I don't understand why everybody isn't doing it quarterly whether you have a consultant in or not just sitting back and doing the but it seems to be something that people kind of go I don't have time to do that yeah as you say the priorities aren't set and then we've got yeah we've got yeah we at least at Patreon, a lot of managers or a lot of teams have used this like quadrant method that maybe some podcast guests have mentioned of like urgency um, and importance. And obviously a lot of work that you do on any given day is important and urgent, right? Like you have to do this week or this month, but there's this whole box of work that's important, but not urgent. And if you never do any of that work, like you put, you set yourself up to be in a really bad position. So I think we try to kind of call it out and say, Hey, we're going to take three hours to do this planning session. And it's not not urgent, but it is really important. It's important for us feeling aligned. It's important for the team kind of knowing what's going on. Um, and just calling out and naming it, I think can be helpful in, in actually prioritizing that, that, um, dedicated heads down time to do it. Yeah, totally. Cause that, that quadrant two activity of, of important, but not urgent actually then drives the priorities. Exactly. Uh, yeah. If you don't know your priorities, go back to square one where you said, I yeah. need my priorities in order to work smarter. I <laughs> yeah. It's a loop. <laughs> um, so talk to me about lessons learned. Are there any particular lessons that you've learned over your career? Yeah, I think um, so, you know, data science and, and data analytics are obviously set up very differently at each company. Um, and at Patreon, we were kind of this like horizontal service team that staffs a lot of different teams. So we have some data scientists that are really dedicated to one team like payments or like fraud because we're a payments processing platform. Ooh. Um, but we also have some data scientists that serve multiple teams. Uh, and I think the biggest lesson I've learned is, um, it's really great to foster data curiosity for like an organization to be really curious and ask a lot of questions. Yeah. 
but the really key lesson for data scientists to learn is at, is following up with like, what are you going to do with this information? Like you have this question, you have this curiosity, you want to know, you know, the number of users in Germany who've logged into the mobile app five times today. Um, and, and really making sure to have that follow-up of making sure the information is useful to the business. I think as a data science leader, it's so important to spending my time and my team's time wisely is making sure we're working on the most important thing. So that's the biggest thing is like, I wish that I wish that um, I gained that skill earlier and I wish my, my teammates did of really making sure that what we're working on is relevant and important and like going to help us in some way. Um, I think another really important thing is, uh, the, that I've learned is the way you respond to a question often says a lot about your data culture, right? So if you, if someone asks you a question and it's like the most basic thing that's totally accessible to all employees or that everyone should know, and you respond with kind of feigned ignorance of like, how could you not know that we have a hundred thousand creators? Um, it creates a, a negative like feedback loop, right? Where the person's less likely to ask a question. So the other lesson I think that's been really important to me is like fostering curiosity and fostering a, an environment where you can ask, you can be a brand new employee. It can be your first day. And if you ask a data question, we're going to be excited about your question and we're going to answer positively. And we're going to like give you positive feedback um, has been, has been really important too. So that's, uh, so you're talking about curiosity, not just on the part of the data scientist or the analyst, but also on the part of if, if the client or the stakeholder is curious, that we should be rewarding that so that they continue to be curious, even if the questions are done. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I would, I would so much rather be in an organization where people are bombarding the data team with questions and they're constantly asking and coming up with hypotheses than when people are too afraid to ask because of fear of looking dumb or fear of, you know, not knowing the right question to ask. Um, so I think that that's been a, a really big lesson. And then the last one, I mean, for me as a manager, um, you know, there's many different styles of management and at Patreon, we are, we are coaching managers rather than telling. So when, when someone comes to us with a problem, we're going to tend to answer it with a question rather than do thing X, Y, or Z. Um, and I think as a manager, that meant that in my first couple of years of management, management, I was, um, much less likely to sometimes ask for just what I needed to say yes. like, Hey, will you do this thing? Like, this report needs to be done tomorrow or like, we really need this analysis to be done. Will you do it? Um, and it took me a while to realize that you can still sometimes ask as a manager for something to be done without yeah. being a micromanager and kind of getting into the stigma of like, you know, yeah. way over managing your employees. Uh, and it took a while for me to be comfortable to, to actually ask for like, Hey, this needs to be done, which I think is kind of the opposite of a lot of managers who maybe start asking too much and then realize how to coach. Um, but for me, it's been very freeing to feel empowered of like, you yeah. know, you can have a good balance of coaching and sometimes telling. So um, what, happened, what happened to make that, make you aware of that? Was there an event or did someone advise you to kind of go, hey, you can actually give people assignments as well as wait till they say, hey, I want something to do. Yeah. Yeah. I had a really good coach who just helped me think about the, you know, I think it's good as a manager to evaluate your level of delegation to like, look at all of your projects and ask, Hey, should I, should I actually be doing all of these things for my role? Or are there parts of this that are better served by someone else on the team doing them? Um, and I think the, like the coach's instinct to be like, Hey Mara, you might want to take some of these projects and delegate them and not delegate them as in like, who wants to do them, but delegate them as in saying, Hey, you, I would like you to own this project. I think 
would be great career growth and a good opportunity. Um, and really like lean into the discomfort of asking someone to, to take something on, um, because it's good for the employee and it's good for you. Mm-hmm. And it's good practice as a manager to, to identify what, you know, really is within your role and what might be served by someone else's role. So it really took a coach, like kind of identifying that when I was, you know, too stressed out about stuff, um, for me to reevaluate kind of what was appropriate and what wasn't once you become a leader of a team. Yeah. And that's a big jump, isn't it? From going from being second violinist to suddenly yeah. <laughs> the the conductor, uh, it's a big jump. Did, yeah. What did? How did you? How did the transition go for you? Yeah, I think it was um, it was scary at first, but I was really well supported. Like Patreon is a very supportive management group, and a lot of you know a lot of training, a lot of education. Um, and I think the biggest thing that's been important is just recognizing that management is a totally different role than an individual data scientist, and it has different skills, and you're growing in different ways, um, and that not one is better than the other. Um, and I think that's a very important message for all employees to have that like you don't have to you know you shouldn't have to be promoted to become a manager. Um, you can you can grow within an individual contributor track and that also managers if you are a manager like make sure that the career growth of a manager is what you want that you want to learn to coach and to prioritize and to lead strategy and all of that Um, so I think kind of like that that was really key to me feeling you know excited and comfortable about being a manager is kind of looking at the career paths and understanding what they where they went and what they would entail learning Mm -hmm. cool excellent Uh, other questions Better or worse data people? Is there something that you think makes good trays, good ideas? What makes a better or worse data person? Yeah. One of the things I've been talking a lot recently with the team is um, that makes a good data person is knowing when to stop. Um, <laughs> especially, if artist, exactly. yeah. especially if you're in a, um, a, a field or an area that's really greenfield, right? Really undiscovered. Like we at Patreon are studying membership and mm-hmm. we really have a lot of data that people have not seen before, right? It's not like we're a food delivery app and there are seven other companies that have done it. It's kind of seeing the first under- data understanding of what membership looks like. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's so exciting. But the challenge with that is like, you could research this one question for like five weeks and just keep going and going and going and going and adding additional data cuts and different characteristics. Um, and so I really value when, uh, when a data scientist knows kind of how to scope a problem and yeah. how to say, okay, here's the basic understanding, here's the advanced understanding, and then here's the stuff that we're not going to get to because it's not going to like add value. Um, that's definitely a, a skill and a characteristic that I look for, um, you know, in hiring and also like in the team, I try to cultivate yeah. that. Another one that's so important to me is curiosity. Like if your team is not interested in understanding messy data or in looking at a new problem and asking a follow-up question, um, that can be a big red flag if there's like not an interest there. Um, And I think that's super important because, you know, there are so many areas within analytics, you know, you could be in finance or healthcare or education and making sure you're finding people that are inherently curious about that specific field. Like, so for us at Patreon, it's interested about creators and about art and about um, content and YouTube and all that stuff. Um, so curiosity is really important to me. And then I think the, the biggest like difference between a good and a great data scientist or analyst to me is communication. Mm-hmm. It's like they bridge the gap with stakeholders. They can write up a great technical summary. Um, they can, you know, really condense a problem into the simplest parts. Uh, and I think that's a skill that takes like the most investment and time and learning, um, because it's often very specific to like to the field that it's in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So how do you, when you recruit, how do you recruit for those kinds of things? Do you have a particular structure you use or? 
Yeah, at Patreon, we I think of recruiting in like kind of three elements. The first is we definitely have a technical bar, um, which is just like everyone in the team should feel really comfortable querying data and writing scripts in Python. Um, and we, yeah, we spend most of our days querying. And so if you aren't comfortable querying, that's like very important skill to, to know. So right that, you don't even get to talk to Maura if you don't have that. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I think there obviously is a spectrum there. Like we have senior data scientists versus folks who are more junior, um, but you still like you're going to spend most of your day writing some sort of SQL. And so if you don't like doing that and you're uncomfortable with it, it, it won't be that fun. Mm -hmm. um, and the second is kind of what I mentioned around communication. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that we test with more like open ended questions, you know, like tell me about a time when you worked with a product manager to resolve an issue with analytics or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that strong communication can come out usually from like behavioral kind of questions and in interviews. Um, and then another thing we, we really search for at Patreon is, is like problem solving. Um, mm -hmm. we're, since we're a startup, you know, we're quite autonomous. So it's not as if you are going to have someone next to you all day, who's going to help you solve a problem and figure out a bug. It's like, Hey, figure this out. Good luck. Go do it. Um, and so we ask some pretty open-ended modeling questions. Um, mm -hmm. like, you know, we, we might ask a question that's like, Hey, how would you model the churn rate of patrons on Patreon? And just like, stop the question there and just see where they take it and see what data they ask for and kind of see where the candidate will go. Um, because many of the questions that we're looking at are that open-ended. And so being able to kind of take a question from very high level, very open-ended to like specific data set and queries is a really important skill. Um, for our team. And then obviously we look at like, are they interested in creators and do they care about our mission? There's like a whole cultural side as well. That's super important. Um, but in terms of the data science, I think the technical bar, the communication and like the problem solving are the key. for me. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Do you like to take people who have a creative background themselves or is that kind of icing on the cake? Yeah, that is definitely icing on the cake. It's funny. A lot of candidates will come in and be like, I don't play piano. Like, can I work here? <laughs> um, of course, like, uh, you know, there's so many different kinds of creators. And here's, and here's a book on how to play the piano. Go learn right, it. Yeah, exactly. um, uh, that's, you know, if someone also has a personal passion, that's great. Um, but in no ways is it like a requisite. I think that would be like kind of weird uh, cultural, you know, cultural bar to have. Um, and I, I think it like, depends how many data scientists there are out there, really. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, I do think it's great that we do have like, you know, a, um, a piano and guitars in the office and we do have a bunch of people who are like, hey, I don't play, I'm not musical at all, but I can enjoy like a performance, um, which of course is always fun to be able to like share that passion with coworkers. Um, okay. We've talked about recruitment. Professional development for you. How do you develop yourself professionally? What do you do? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of conferences and lucky enough to be in the Bay Area where there are a ton. So I've gone to the um, the Women in Data Science Conference that's run out of Stanford and now has kind of global locations is really fantastic. And definitely um, on the technical side of things feels like it keeps me up to date in terms of what's going on in academia and with models and um, with kind of knowing what's latest and greatest. Um, and then I also go, there's a data science conference run by Domino called Rev um, that just happened in New York, which is also really great. And that's much more on like the leader side. How do you lead a team of data scientists? You know, how are you setting up your team and setting goals and all of that, um, which is great. Uh, and then I'm a huge fan of taking courses, like continuing education right. um, so in courses in like deep learning and in R and kind of continue to, um, to build the foundation of my data science skills. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And then of course, I'm a huge fan of data science Twitter, which is like a whole world in and of itself. Um, I didn't uh, know about data science Twitter. What's data science Twitter? Yeah. Well, there's like a whole group of data science practitioners that tweet about data science and data science leadership and what their companies are doing related to data science. Um, and so I try to follow as many kind of like thought leaders, um, if you will, on Twitter and kind of keep in the loop, especially with, you know, again, being in tech in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. There are companies that have much larger data science teams like Airbnb and Netflix and Facebook um, and Google and kind of keeping up with what they're releasing and what's going mm-hmm. on there so that um, I feel like I know kind of how other teams are, are structuring their work. Yeah. So it's a form of networking without having to leave your desk. Right, exactly. <laughs> networking for people that are scared of networking is, <laughs> the, is the summary of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you mentioned doing courses. Is there a particular place you like to do courses? Like, do you do them online? Do you do them live? What do you do? Yeah, so I've done them um, at uh, Stanford, which is also in the Bay Area. The the ICME, which is their kind of computer um, school there, offers courses that are open to everyone, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so open to the public. Uh, and I've taken a few of those. And then I also do like some online like Coursera stuff once in a while, um, especially if there's new courses that are released. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coursera, yeah, that's the people tend to mention Coursera. It's obviously the go-to place for data yeah. science stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, talk to me then about complex explanations. Do you have a particular model you like to follow? Is there a something that you know doesn't work? Yeah, um, I think I think the the thing that we try to do at Patreon that I try to do is to when there's a really complex problem to try to get it down to a one to two sentence summary. Uh-huh. Um, and to always kind of like lead with that and to do the hard work of getting it to that summary, even if it's you know, even if it takes a while to figure out how to boil it down, um, that's super important. I think knowing who your audience is um, and kind of where they're coming from is important as well. Like we'll bring a complex problem or a complex, you know, analysis to a product manager in a very different way than we might to someone who's on the marketing team or on the sales team. So yeah. kind of knowing their like frame of reference um, for uh, for the problem or for the solution. And then um, I've also used the triangle framework. I don't know how popular this is, but it's where you like think of the information that you're giving as a, as a triangle and starting at the top. So saying like, hey, the short summary is that this product change improved our conversion by 20%. And then kind of going down the triangle and saying, what we did is we implemented this thing and it did this thing and here's what we learned. And then you can check in with the person and say, hey, would you like to learn more? And if they say yes, you can go to the very base of the triangle and give all the information. We ran the test for 20 days and here's what the randomization looked like and all of that. Um, and allowing yourself as, the, as a speaker, or as someone communicating to kind of move throughout the triangle, depending mm-hmm. on what the audience, what kind of information they need. Yeah. Um, I think this is super important for data science because often uh, we joke like the, <laughs> the, in the accuracy of the of the of the claim of the data science statement can become less accurate as it goes to different audiences, right? So the CEO's interpretation of an analysis is like often way off from what the original analysis is, and then somehow if it makes its way into a press outlet or the paper, yeah, yeah. It's like completely contorted. Um, so we like to talk about kind of you know the the level of information needed for the executive team, which is something that our data science team is doing a lot. Is producing analyses for the executive team is very different than the level of information needed for another data scientist. Um, So a lot of it is understanding kind of what, what format the consumer expects to hear the information in and um, tailoring that format to what what they're used to. Nice. Yeah, because context is everything, right? How you yeah. explain to a kindergarten kid is not the way you would explain to someone with a PhD in AI. Like it's, yeah. It seems... Uh, 
I, I read an article recently. I can't remember who it was. It was somebody talking a data analyst thing on, on LinkedIn. I will find it. And basically, it was point. It was Adam Grant, uh, and he was talking about there are these insights that are so obvious. I didn't think I needed to point them out, but for some people, they are not obvious. So even the obvious insight is sometimes important. Um, and it's about distinguishing between what we think is obvious and what the person you're listening to might not even be aware of. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it's, it's funny because um, I think what's been nice too is at Patreon we have a framework for this. So we call it like the bottom lined version of a conversation. Yes. So you can actually sometimes interrupt someone if they're going off on some detailed analysis and say, hey, I just need the bottom lined version of it. Like, what do I need to know as a decision maker? And because we've all kind of, we know that the bottom line answer is a thing. Um, we, we all, you know, it's not rude to say, Hey, give me the bottom line, um, which is nice. I think like having frameworks within organizations that help people understand how to communicate and kind of what level of communication is necessary, um, can be really helpful to doing things in an efficient way. Totally. Totally. Absolutely. And, and when teams don't have those traditions, um, well, they can make them. They can yeah. start making them. They can say, hey, I listened to Maura and she said, <laughs> this is what I should do and I'm going to do it with my team. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, it's just some of the things are so simple you don't think they'll work, but it's the simplicity of it that seems to make the difference. Yeah. Um, talk to me about, I think we've pretty much done all the questions, I, two, two to go. If you had to set up a, a data analytics or data science team from scratch, what would you take into account? Oh, yeah, I think, so it depends a lot on the stage of the company. I think depending on the infrastructure that's set in place, you know, I, I joke with my team all the time that when I joined Patreon, we had a, a Python script that was writing our metrics to a Google sheet every day. And every day, every day, the Google sheet would get wiped completely clean and would be reset with metrics, you know, and now we have a big Redshift analytics cluster and we have all these queries and dashboards and reports and it's this whole built beautiful thing, but you start with where you need to start based on yeah. the kind of stage of the company. So I think that's a huge key is I want to understand where the company is. Yeah. Um, one thing I, th I would think about a lot in starting an analytics team is the, the right mix of people. Um, I think it's really helpful to have someone who's, you know, either a data engineer or a quasi data engineer early on and someone who really loves analytics, who loves writing straightforward um, SQL queries, who loves visualizing stuff in charts and who can actually build the company's understanding of their business. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of the makeup of the team of like, you don't want just a team of, you know, all PhDs. Uh, or just a team of all former business analysts or just a team of consultants or whatever. Yeah. Um, really thinking about the diversity of that team. Um, and then another thing I, I would definitely think about is the, the kind of mission of the team. You know, there are mm -hmm. data science teams that are really research focused that are going to kind of go off in a corner and do really heads down long research projects that might change the directory, uh, the trajectory of the company. Um, and then there are teams that might be way more service oriented that it's like, Hey, legal team, what do you need? Let me answer that with data or Hey, finance team, what do you need? Let me answer that with data. So understanding kind of what team structure and, and mission is going to serve the company. Mm. Um, would be super important to me. Um, and then all those things we talked about with like hiring is like finding people that are curious and communicative um, and really excited about what the company's doing are really important to the kind of like founding founding mm -hmm. structure. Absolutely. Um, so I've been talking to some clients recently, for example, who have no data and they've been around for 50 years. They've got lots of data. They're just not doing anything with it. So when yeah. an analytics team from scratch, they're part of their things they need to take into account is how do we actually even let the organization know we exist and what we do because 
it, yeah, as you, you're right, if, you've, if you kind of, we've just started and now we've just got to find, make sense of this, it's a very different thing to we're a 200-year-old organisation with all this data we've never looked at before. Yeah. <laughs> we've got some spreadsheets somewhere, but really, you know, there's probably some things we could do with our data. Um, yeah. It's a tricky, it's a tricky stage because the client or the stakeholder doesn't even know they need you yet. So you're yeah. right, going to them and going, what are your problems? Let me answer that with data is a very nice way to kind of open up those conversations. Um, yeah, I think especially in, in organizations that don't have, that don't see the need for data yet, yeah. a lot of the foundational work is really establishing trust, is really saying, hey, yeah. we're the data team, we have information that is accurate and is high quality and we hold ourselves to a certain standard and here are like problems that we're going to solve and here are insights that we're going to create. I think that, you know, some people are very lucky to go into data science organizations where there's already trust established where they don't need to prove the value of data. And then other people are kind of working against the current and saying, hey, data is valuable. It's going to help our business. We're going to be more successful and profitable and all of that. Um, and that can be a very different kind of um, narrative of a team depending on what larger organization you're in. So definitely understanding the organization's capacity to understand data and to want mm -hmm. data and to use it um, is super important in knowing kind of where your team is going to sit and, and what they're going to do. Yeah, totally. Exactly. So so my kind of final question is what's your favorite charity? Yeah. Um, so I really, I've, I've been on the board of a nonprofit um, called Chanticleer, which yeah. is a performing arts organization here in the Bay area um, for the past three years. And they're awesome. They're a male vocal ensemble. They sing all over the world. Um, and so I really have loved working for them and kind of um, helping the work that they do, which is to spread music throughout the world and educate people about it, which mm -hmm. as you might've gathered is super near and dear to my heart. On, bring it on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I also really, I um, also have to mention Code 2040, which is a really cool organization also um, based here that works with, um, you know, kids and, and high school kids from underrepresented groups and teaching them how to code and helping them learn. Um, and so, so kind of sets up a much healthier and more diverse pipeline into tech. Yeah. Um, which is another huge passion of mine is kind of um, as bridging the gap and making things more equal inside of tech. Nice. Yeah. So more equal, is that a gender difference, an ethnicity difference, a socioeconomic difference? What's the... Yeah, Code 2040 is is focused on uh, kind of like racially, uh, the racial demographic side of things. So cool. underrepresented on the racially, on the racial side. Yeah. Okay, cool. Excellent. Do you have yeah. any questions for me? Oh man, I would love to know. Um, yeah, for that last question for you, like, what what do you see as as being most important in kind of the early the early days of setting up a team from all the experience that you have? Oh, excellent. Well, I agree with everything you've said. Um, and I've been asking the question of a number of people. I'm, I will make something. It'll go onto LinkedIn at some. <laughs> point. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if it's going to be a video or a podcast or a what. Um, the thing that I'm noticing is, especially in established organisations where they don't have data, is that people are looking for a mythical analyst beast <laughs> that not only has all of the data, be, data stuff you want but can also engage stakeholders and kind of get stakeholders excited about, oh, we're going to have the capacity to look at our data. Um, and I don't believe those, those skills are kind of... <laughs> 
<laughs> no, they don't all reside in one person. I know maybe yeah. two or three of the 900 or so analysts who are my friends on LinkedIn. Um, there is, there's two or three that I know of who could, can actually kind of do the salesy part, but they're actually not real strong on the data part. Um, yeah. it's kind of like it's nice to have both and it's a mythical beast um, and the thing that uh, certainly what I've been suggesting to my clients is, hey, you can hire that stuff in. Get someone to design you some workshops and co-facilitate with a workshop facilitator who loves it and is good at engaging the people and have the kind of buddy who's, you know, uh, able to actually talk about you know, regression analysis or whatever you want to say, assuming that a stakeholder even asks about that, which they might because they've read an article. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, and and you know that balance of getting the skills in terms of the analytic skills is important. Uh, having someone in the team who can at least interface with the the engager, but thinking that we can engage uh, with the same. Uh, the people, say people are going to engage uh, is, is a furphy because unless they're instructed on how to build trust, so your point of it, it's about let's build trust with the organisation first and then when they trust us we can do what we need to do. Um, yeah. our, tricky, our tricky world with consulting um, and ultimately analytics is consulting because you're internal to organisation trying to help them do their thing um, uh, it's that distinction between what the client thinks they want and what you know they probably want, yep. <laughs> what they actually need, uh, and that's the tricky thing. Um, I, I spend a lot of time helping analysts and leaders of analytics teams essentially start to kind of structure and put in systems that take the people into account, you know, the how do we take a brief, the um, how do we... Um, Sorry, I'm just going to close my door. How do we take a brief? How do we um, build trust? How do we know it's time to move forward with a client? How do we know to stand back that the stuff you were talking about earlier about standing back from the relationship and going, what's working, what isn't working? How can I engage this person more? How can I pull back so that they have a chance to essentially assess where they're up to it's yeah because my thing is all about the people side of consulting and analytics all, all of my concerns around the are around the hey get the people right right people in the job but also give them the skills those soft skills a lot of soft skills are actually able we can systematize them but you need to have people realize they need to use them Mm -hmm. um, there's got to be some kind of trigger in their environment that says, ah, now you have to build trust. Okay, the process is A, B, C, D, E. And I think uh, the best service we can do for people is to give them an understanding of at this point you should change your behaviour and pay attention to trust signals. At this point you should change your behaviour and stop talking and ask questions. Um, and I think those things can be systematised for individuals who don't necessarily have those scripts in their in their experience. But, hey, when I was 20, I didn't have those scripts either. So, yeah. yeah. The thing you mentioned, you know, I, th I think like probably once a week someone on my team comes to me and says, hey, this person asked this question, but what they really mean is something totally different, yeah. you know, like that interpretation step of working as a, as a data human and working with other people and knowing 
you know, being able to take what they ask you and turn it into what they actually need to make a decision. Absolutely. Um, such a hard skill. And it's so, you know, you, uh, many times I think folks on my team and myself as well have learned it by getting it wrong, by just, yeah. you know, answering the question that someone gave them and then delivering it. And that person being like, ah, actually I need something totally different. Yeah. Um, and going through, you know, five rounds of kind of revising a question. And, and that's a skill that, you know, it can take a really long time to hone and to, to get right. Totally. And look, and I, I know that in my 20s, I, I went and did a job uh, with a client who four different people had already been through. It was a quality job. It was back in the 80, 90s. We were doing quality. Um, and uh, the client just kept saying, I want key performance indicators. And they kept saying, oh, no, but first you have to do this and this and this and all those Fishstone diagrams and, uh, you know, roots root cause analysis and blah, 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 blah. And the client said, I just want KPIs. That's all I want. Give me KPIs. So he, she, kept, she kept kicking people out. So they sent me in going, look, you know, she's impossible and maybe it won't work, but hey, try. And um, basically I said, great, you want KPIs? Let's give you some. They won't tell you everything, but if you want them, have them. That woman has been, uh, has basically fed me Many, many years in, in my consulting career, I'm just finishing a job for someone who she introduced me to uh, <laughs> right now because I gave her the KPIs that she wanted. They weren't high quality. They weren't exactly like they didn't give her all the information she wanted, but that was then an, a possibility to go, so now that we've got those, let's do this, do a fishbone diagram, do a root cause analysis, you know, work, do a workload analysis, all of those things. Mm -hmm and see how that changes the indicators and then we'll, you know, we'll work on them. Because so sometimes you have to give the client what they ask for, even if you know it's not what they want. Yeah. That gives them the sense of they're in control, not you coming in, you know, out of the blue going, hey, I'm the expert. I'm from head office. I'm going to help you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's that, uh, that balance. But, yeah, I think it's people. They're complex. Yeah. There's this great, this just reminds me because I was just there two weeks ago at Rev, the data science conference and Josh Wills, who's um, uh, an engineer at Slack, gave this talk that was very hilarious. He's very funny. But mm. one of the things that he mentioned was this idea of the map is not the territory. Oh, um, yeah. Which yeah. I think is so, I brought that back to my team and said, this is perfect. Summarizes all of our challenges, which is, you know, you as a data scientist are tasked with making a map of someone's territory. And that map might be metrics and it might be analyses and it might be dashboards. and the, at the end of the day, the what you make is not actually the territory that the people on that team are in every day and that they know like the back of their hand. And so you have to be very careful when you're presenting the map because it can, people can get very defensive and they can yeah. say, hey, that metric is going down, but you know, I'm working in this team and I know what it's like and we're doing great work. Um, and so knowing that concept, I think, as a data scientist of, hey, the map I'm making is not the territory and I need to respect the experts and make sure that that's a, a give and take and a conversation um, has been such a like great idea mm. that I love for helping data scientists understand kind of the limits of where the map can go. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it gives them an idea. I remember years ago I went to a David Meister training. I don't think David Meister's even working anymore, but davidmeister.com, and he did a lot of stuff for consultants. Mm -hmm. um, and he talked, He had a whole thing in his book, which was called the, not the Trusted Advisor, but the Professional Services Firm, I think it was called. He had a whole chapter on you have to understand what it's like to be a client because they're used to being in control and now they're not. 
because you've come in as the expert or the specialist or the advisor and so they feel dumb. So they feel anxious that you're going to find the the cracks in their armour that they've so well pretended aren't there. Um, that whole uh, anxiety of being a client is real, is quite real. Um, and, yeah, I think we don't always recognise the people part of doing the consulting of being, we, we think, well, you want the best solution, but you also want to feel, we want people to be human. Um, and that's, yeah, that's a, it's a very interesting balance. So, yeah. So anything else you want to say, Maura? Uh, if you're listening to the podcast and you're a fan of creators, uh, definitely support them on patreon.com uh, yeah. and um, check them out. There's like tons of creators and artists to support uh, and lots to, lots to discover. Perfect. Thank you so much, Maura. It's been a wonderful yeah. time to, to have all my prejudices reinforced by a real leader in date and, and, date <laughs> and, uh, and all my beliefs about what's important. Um, <laughs> it's been fabulous. I'd love to interview you again in, say, six months' time when I have new questions. Would that be all oh, right? Wonderful. Thank you, Cindy. I would love that. All right, cool. This is Cindy Tonkin. I'm the Consultant's Consultant, and you've been listening to Smarter Data People. This is part of what I do to understand how it is that data scientists can be more effective in the workplace, smarter, faster, and nicer. And if you have a team and you're finding them harder to manage than they could be, if you're constantly trying to squeeze more out of your budget and out of their time, and if you've got stakeholders or they've got stakeholders who are less than happy sometimes, maybe a lot more than sometimes, it can be really annoying and it can make you feel incompetent. I can help you help them get to the important problems faster, target the wasted time and save you time and money and ultimately delight stakeholders so that you can feel competent again. It's such a good feeling. Talk to me.